You may have noticed a little bit of a theme in our song service this morning. We, we sang a lot about truth and uh, sang a lot about the Word of God. Uh, we sang, of course, a lot about Jesus, and uh, all these things go together, don't they? And uh, the passage that we're going to look at today uh, has a lot to say about these things. So Matthew chapter number 5, and uh, we'll read verses 17 through 20. That'll be our text for this morning. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord Jesus, these words of yours are, are true. We know that. Uh, they are powerful. Uh, there's some depth there. Lord, we want you to teach us through these things. Uh, perhaps if there's any apprehension or confusion about coming to these things, Lord, sometimes words in Scripture seem divisive. And uh, this is certainly one of those cases, Jesus, where you, you spoke truth that would have been seen as some or by some as divisive, Lord, but it was necessary. It was part of your purpose of coming here to speak these things, to reveal these things. So help us to see them. Help us to see the weight of them, the importance of them. Help us to see the life that is within them. And as uh, we just sang, speak, Lord. Renew our minds. Uh, help us to grasp the height and the depth of your ways through your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Jesus fulfills the scriptures. That's uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning. It's a good topic. Have you ever asked the question, or have you ever been asked the question, why do you still read and study the Bible even after all these years? After all, someone might say, the Bible in its completed form has been around for 1,800 years or so, and the Old Testament has been around way longer than that, wouldn't there be something more relevant or more pertinent to our life, more up-to-date than that by now? Now, when I speak a question like that, I speak it tongue-in-cheek. Um, I'm a pastor, a teacher of God's Word, and of course, I don't think like that necessarily, but do I, really, when it comes right down to it? For many people, the question of whether or not the Bible is still important or relevant may not be spoken in words, but it may still be a question of the heart. And for many people, the question of whether or not the Bible is still important or relevant is not a trivial matter at all. It's a matter of crisis. We could give a lot of examples. Many people would deny the Bible's relevance because of science in one form or another. We hear a lot about the science today, don't we? 
And, uh, but the advent of science versus faith is not a 21st century or even a 20th century phenomenon. That dance between faith and enlightenment or faith and reason, faith and modernism, postmodernism, whatever it is, that's been happening now for hundreds of years. Many people would perhaps deny the, the scripture's relevance for the sake of other traditions. After all, you might say all religions are kind of alike. They all have the same common goals in mind. They are just different interpretations of the same basic principles, right? Some would deny the scripture's relevance in favor of new revelation. We couldn't list all the cults that have sprung up over the years as offshoots of the biblical Christian faith. Some that are quite prominent. Some who may still even knock on your door every once in a while. Still others feel that the written word of God is not sufficient and would look for perhaps new revelation in, in signs and in wonders in, in enlightenment, something to freshen or bring new life or bring God's truth up to date. And still others, maybe most, would deny the scripture's relevance simply because they're just not interested. They just don't care. Maybe they would adopt some of the reasoning of some of these other viewpoints, but when it comes right down to it, maybe it's not an overt hostility, it's just an indifference to it. The scripture is fine, maybe it's helpful, maybe it's even true, it has some nice ideas and nice principles in it, but beyond that, it's just another work of antiquity. Now, these views of the scripture, of the Bible, they can work themselves out practically in many, many ways. Some would agree that the Bible is relevant, but perhaps not all of it is true. Some would pick and choose which parts of the scripture are relevant and true for today. Uh, some popular Bible teachers even today would suggest things like uh, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Leaving it behind really is simply a work of history. And sometimes there's a theme when, when you're speaking to someone who might voice some of these concerns, someone who might deny the relevance of all or some of the scripture, and they might say something like, well, Jesus came and he really changed things. There might be a sense of, well, Jesus sort of did away with the relevance of at least the Old Testament. We could go on and on with those kinds of comments, but whether someone's objections are scientific or religious or traditional or just preferential, it's important to wrestle with and grasp what we believe about God's word. Otherwise, we would ask the question, what are we doing here every week? Well, the passage that we are in today kind of addresses all these concerns in a simple way. You see, Jesus anticipates the fact that his ministry would bring up a lot of questions. And one of those questions would be something like this. Are you trying to destroy the law? Are you trying to deny God's law? I could give a lot of examples, but just a few in Matthew. Matthew 9.3, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves about Jesus, this man is blaspheming. Matthew 9.11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Another one, Matthew 12, 2. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. 
another one in Matthew 15. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, I know those are just a list of maybe out-of-context quotes, but if you read each one of them, it comes down to the question of these people thought Jesus was disregarding God's law. And there are many of these references, even just in the book of Matthew, let alone the other gospel records. But one of the big questions, if we boil it all down, one of the big questions from the religious leaders in Jesus' day was this. Do you deny God's law? In other words, do you deny what God has said in Scripture? Well, Jesus answers that question here early in his teaching, and the answer is as relevant today as it is for that day. Because in our day, that question is still being asked, but maybe it's being asked with a reverse motive. We might ask, is all the Bibles really relevant for us, Jesus, or did you do away with that? What does Jesus mean by that? When he says the law and the prophets, that, when taken a phrase, is kind of a rhetorical device, or at least it was a rhetorical to device to refer to what we call the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures were usually referred to in three parts. There was the law, or the Tanakh. There was the prophets, the Nevi'im. And then there were the writings, the Ketuvim. These three together were, and still are by some, uh, popularly called the, the Tanakh. The law is the first five books. It's the books of Moses. The Pentateuch is what we usually call it. The prophets were usually broken into a couple sections. There were the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets included most of the books of history. The latter prophets included the prophets, like we know them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, etc. And then the writings would include books like the books of poetry and the story of Job. And when someone said the law and the prophets, it really was an all-inclusive statement from the books of Moses to the latter prophets. In other words, the whole thing. So Jesus is saying, in essence, I have not come to do away with one single part of the scripture. Remember, there were no New Testament writings at this point. So about their Bible, Jesus was saying, I have not come to negate one part of this. Not one part. It's interesting when Jesus says, I have come. That's really a, a purpose statement, a, a mission statement. It's, it's as if, and he was, aware of his purpose, and he says it in both positive and negative ways. I have not come to abolish, but I have come to fulfill. If you think back a few months to the beginning of our time in Matthew, you'll remember that we spent quite a bit of time talking about the fulfillment theme in Matthew. That is, in Matthew's gospel, over and over again, we've already seen it several times, uh, he shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of the scripture. Right from the first chapter on, there's no denying the purpose of this gospel record to show how Jesus fulfills the scripture. And there is no clearer evidence or testimony to that than Jesus' statement right here. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what does it mean? What, what does it mean to fulfill? Well, it could simply mean that Jesus came to 
obey the Old Testament law, and he certainly did do that. He kept it perfectly, like nobody else ever could or ever will again do, but that's not the normal meaning of the word fulfill. So while he did obey it, I don't think that's what he meant by, I have come to fulfill it. It could mean that Jesus meant that he was going to repair or to fix the law and prophets, but if we read the Gospels together and we, we see Jesus' teaching, we find that Jesus didn't see the Old Testament as something that needed fixing at all. Rather, he quotes the scriptures over and over again, over 70 times, and from over 25 of the Old Testament books. Jesus loved the scripture more than anyone else. Thirdly, it, it could mean, and I think it does mean, that Jesus came to accomplish or complete the law, and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not an enemy of God's law. I'm not here to, to do away with it and to abolish it. I'm here to teach and show exactly how it is true. Jesus shows us how the Old Testament scriptures are true. He didn't come to destroy them or nullify them, but to accomplish and prove them. His birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his promised return are all points of fulfillment. As, and as we continue through Matthew, we will see Christ fulfilling the scriptures over and over again. In John chapter number five, to a group of Jewish people who were seeking to persecute him, Jesus says this, the father who has sent me himself has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures are not done away with in Christ. No, they bear witness to him. They are proven in him. Secondly, we see that not one word will pass away. The word is lasting. Jesus goes on, continues and gives an amazing um, attestation to God's word. He says in verse number 18, for truly I say to you, now stop there for a second. That's, this is really interesting. We see Jesus speaking like this many, many times in the New Testament. He says truly, and in your uh, translation of scripture might have the word amen there, or it might say something like verily. Uh, those are all uh, translations of the same word and when it's a word that was meant to confirm teaching. Now, most people would say that after a teacher was done. But it's interesting that Jesus says it himself and before he even started. It's like he's saying, amen, this is true. And then says what is true. And actually, it's also interesting because most of the time when the writers of scriptures say something, they might say, well, God has said, or the prophets have said. But in this case, Jesus says, truly, I say unto you. Doesn't that speak something powerful about who Jesus is? 
And we move on. He says, truly, I say unto you, amen, I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not an iota, not a dot. Uh, you may have not a jot or not a tittle. These are references to the smallest characters in a written language. Uh, in Greek, the iota was the smallest letter. It's actually pronounced iota, but we all say iota, so I say it like that too. Jesus was probably here referring to the, the Hebrew letter yod, which was, again, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the dot, or the, the, the tittle, is not even a letter. That's just a pen stroke that makes up the difference between one letter and another. It's like the dot on an I or the cross on a T. It's as if Jesus is saying, not even a letter, not even a pen stroke is going to pass away from the word of God until all is accomplished. So rather than speaking of abolishment, Jesus is speaking for the total fulfillment and undying truthfulness of God's word. He's saying, don't disregard God's word and also don't think that you have it mastered because God is not done with it yet. Of course, the Jewish people would have been familiar with the concept of God preserving his word. Uh, remember Isaiah 40, verse 8? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand or endure forever. There really wouldn't have been a doubt about the enduring nature of God's word in the Jewish mind, but really Jesus takes it a step further. He's saying not only will it remain as a document, as a guide, as a written record, but it remains truthful and everything it says will be accomplished. And as he says that, he's already just tied himself to that claim because he came again not to abolish it, but to fulfill it or to accomplish it. I have come, Jesus says, not to abolish it, but I have come to fulfill it because not one pen stroke will pass from it until it is accomplished. And that's why I'm here. Paul would wrestle with similar questions in his letter to the Romans. And I love the simple statement that he makes in Romans 10, verse 4. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is in the context of Paul praying for his, his fellow Israelites, according to the flesh, that they would come to faith in Christ. And he's really affirming what Jesus has said here in Matthew 5, because Christ is not denying or belittling the law. Rather, he is the end of it, the fulfillment of it. You could say he is where the law points to. In another place, Paul says that, that the law is a schoolmaster or a tutor that brings us to Christ. The law is good. It is true. It is God's word. It reveals God's character, his nature, his demands, his righteousness, his holiness, his justice, his mercy and love, and so much about him. But it was always pointing to Jesus Christ, and it still points to him. Through the Old Testament scriptures, we still find out about who God is, what he looks like, his holiness and his righteousness. But as Paul says, the works of the law cannot justify us in his sight. But the law, the prophets, the whole scriptures point us to Christ, the one who came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. 
He is the goal of it, the intended result of it. As Paul says, he is the end. Not in a way of an abolishment, but an end in the way of completion. Thirdly, in the passage, we see that the truth determines our kingdom's citizenship. In other words, the word is relevant. Look at verses 19 and 20. And Jesus gives a purpose statement here again. Based on what he just said, he says in verse 19, Therefore, therefore, whoever relaxes one of these least of these commandments shall be and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As we think of Jesus' words, and as he says, therefore, so he's building off of what he said, it's important to know that, that while Jesus fulfills the law, he is, in a sense, still fulfilling it. The Old Testament testimony and teachings and prophecies have not passed away because the fullness of the kingdom has not yet come. For that, we are still waiting and we're still praying. Like Jesus will teach us just the next chapter, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. So that means that God's word and all of it is still relevant. It's still living and active. It still has not passed away as Hebrews 4 tells us. And as Jesus starts the sentence in verse 19 with the word, therefore, in other words, because, because I haven't come to abolish God's word, because I have come to fulfill it, because the Old Testament scriptures won't pass away until the fullness comes, then it's important and vital. And Jesus speaks here of those who would teach God's word and says, whoever relaxes even one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same, will be the least in the kingdom. But whoever does and teaches them will be the greatest. In Jesus' day, there was a way of speaking among uh, the Jewish teachers about those commandments which were considered light and those which were considered weighty. It's interesting, in some documents contemporary with this time, uh, people spoke of the Pharisees as those who like to smooth things over. And what they, meant, what they meant by that is they like to take God's law and summarize it, explain it, categorize it in ways that made it so you could still fulfill the letter of it while never really getting into the depth of it. And I think Jesus is maybe making a play on words where he talks about here, the one who even relaxes one of the least of these will be the least in the kingdom. I also think Jesus is addressing this concept of weighty and light teachings here, and he would continually address it in his teaching. He's addressing the overall mindset of letter keeping. That is strictly keeping the law to the letter, but being ignorant of the true sense in the spirit of God's word. There were many in Jesus' day who were law experts, but very few 
it seems, who sought the deeper heart of God and his word. There were very many teachers who could tell you exactly how many laws there were in God's word. They could tell you how many letters and how many words were in a particular section of scripture, but they were very little who were interested in the true depth of it. Skipping ahead in Matthew, but it'll be a while before we get there, so you'll forget about it anyway. But Matthew 23 Uh, Verse 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Hear that language again that Jesus is addressing? And what are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done, he says, without neglecting the others. Again, Jesus is calling important or attention to the importance of God's commands and his word. But he's saying that many have missed it. Many have missed, as we say, the forest for the trees. It reminds me of an interaction I had with a friend as a young man. I, I played baseball for a few years, probably four or five years, and I enjoyed it. I was never an all-star player, uh, but I loved the game. I loved watching the game. Uh, My grandfather took me many times to Fenway Park to see the Red Sox play. Uh, I loved reading about the game. I loved uh, learning about the game, and I loved playing the game. Well, I had a friend who was one of these guys who just had a myriad of useless facts in his head, and he loved to, to just stump people with these questions to show his superior knowledge. And uh, one day he asked me, he said, hey, Aaron, how many stitches are on a Major League Baseball? And you could just see it in his eyes. Like he was eager for me to say, I don't know. He couldn't wait to get the satisfaction of knowing something that somebody else didn't know. He followed that up with, how much does a Major League Baseball weigh? And then, how many baseballs on average do Major League teams use in a game? How high does a pitcher's mound project off the surface of the field? And after all these questions, and he was well satisfied with his ability to stump me with his superior knowledge, I asked him one question. I said, do you want to play catch? And I knew the answer to that. He didn't want to. He didn't even have a baseball glove. He had hardly ever even held or thrown a baseball, let alone played the game. In other words, he knew everything to know except how to play baseball. I thought of that in my own mind as an illustration of Jesus' interactions with the scribes and Pharisees. You could say they knew how many stitches were on the baseball of the law, as it were, but they didn't understand how to play the game, so to speak. Or maybe they did know how to play the game, and that was the problem. They knew how many laws, how many letters, how many words, but they didn't understand God within the law. They tithed the mint and the dill and the cumin, which was commendable. Jesus said, you should do those things. But they didn't understand justice, righteousness, and mercy. Which, might I say, are very parts of God's own nature. They had an extreme head knowledge of God's law. But when it came right down to it, revealed in how they interacted with Jesus, God's Son, They had little knowledge of God himself. And with that in mind, finally, Jesus, we would say, drops the bomb in verse number 20. And he says, I tell you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Practically speaking, we think of righteousness as right standing and right relationship before God and secondly before others. And if that standing comes from strict to the letter law keeping, then the scribes and Pharisees couldn't be bested at their game. They were at the top of the top. When it came to law keeping and law knowing, they were it. Yet Jesus says that righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if we even want to enter the kingdom, let alone his speaking about being least or great in it. In other words, he places the most elite group of religious people in his day below the entry point of his own kingdom. Whatever we make of the scripture of God's law and our approach to it, we can know one thing. The scribes and Pharisees' approach was the wrong one. It wasn't enough to be experts, to keep the letter. They seem to have missed God's true intention, which ultimately would point to Jesus. Again, we read in John 5, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life, but they testify about me. They had missed it. Perhaps the Pharisees would have sneered at Jesus' words that we've already gone over. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because I have a feeling they thought that they might have had it nailed already. And we ask ourselves, would we sneer at Jesus' words, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst? Would we sneer because we think we're not poor in spirit, we're living well? Would we sneer because we think we're not mourning sin and unrighteousness? We've already moved beyond that. Would we sneer because we would say, well, we don't need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We've, we've already got it. And what a shock when Jesus says that these people are below the entry point in the kingdom. They had so focused on externals, the letter, that they had missed the truth. They had missed mercy and justice. Mostly they had missed Jesus. They had missed the Messiah. As we said, they were well known for smoothing out the law, making it applicable, adding qualifications and standards and explanations so that they could be sure they kept it to the letter. But they missed what Jesus says is the big point of the whole scripture, that God was not done yet, that he was sending a Messiah, and Jesus says, hey, that's me. If righteousness is right standing and right relationship to God, then the Pharisees, Jesus says, they missed that. Through all of their law, knowledge, and keeping, they had missed true righteousness. They had right actions, but their relationship to God was without any true life. Christ came to bring righteousness. 
He desires that our righteousness would be true righteousness. And may I say that that comes to us first, as it did with Abraham, as imputed righteousness. In other words, we stand ultimately before God with the righteousness of Christ on our account. Otherwise, we would have no standing. And from that point, Christ desires true righteousness to flow from his people. And that is not growth in mere letter keeping, but in knowledge of God, devotion, obedience, and love for him. In other words, we love the law, but we love God who is in and above and beside and beneath and around the law. And if we ever say, I've made it, there's a good chance that we've actually missed it. Only through Christ can our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. They knew everything about baseball except how to play baseball. They knew everything about God except his son. A couple points of application. First, the truth and the authority of the Bible is critical to everything about us as Christ followers. We want to find ourselves like the blessed man in Psalm 1 who loves God's word and meditates on it day and night. The Old and now the New Testaments are the living, active, inspired word of God. They point us to Jesus, what he's done in the gospel, and we live or die by the truth that God has revealed. Secondly, if the scriptures point to Jesus, then so should we. The author of Hebrews says as he opens his letter, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. As Paul says, Jesus is the end of the law. He is the fulfillment of it in his own words. If we become experts on the Bible, but miss Jesus, we've missed everything. In that case, we're no better than the scribes and Pharisees, who, again, were below the entry level in God's kingdom. Another application, we should realize that God's demand for righteousness is more than just letter-keeping. Again, Jesus' authority, his person and work, it's central to Scripture. If we think that we can have relationship to God apart from Jesus, then We've made a major false assumption. If we think that we can earn our standing with God, if we can outdo the scribes and Pharisees in strict law-keeping, then we've only dug ourselves deeper into that same ditch. We find ourselves full of knowledge, but missing the gospel, missing Jesus, missing his grace. God's demands of righteousness, when we take them honestly and seriously, they must throw us upon mercy, because we realize that we can never accomplish what is demanded. But Jesus has accomplished what is demanded, and in fulfilling the law, he has also made a way for us to be made right, to be given a right standing, right relationship, and he gives us the grace to grow in love and obedience to him. So we could ask, do we know and love the Bible? 
do we know and love Jesus? Because the two can't be separated. If if you're here today and you have a, a knowledge of Scripture, but no real relationship to Christ, cast yourself upon his mercy. I would beg you to, to call upon him. Ask somebody, how can I, how can I have this mercy? How can I, how can I ever have righteousness that, that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees? Christ calls us to himself to follow him, to look to him. Christ is the point and the goal of all the scriptures. Jesus' fulfilling of the scriptures teaches us that all of God's word is true. It is lasting, and it is relevant to our lives.